And so Newman said to be a university to the fullest degree, there really has to be an attempt to teach the fullness of, of human knowledge. And that's mm-hmm. actually a, a key element of the book because he's saying that modern universities are leaving out theology. And so therefore they cannot be universities because they're not teaching theology. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. And welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined as always by the great Larissa Bianco. Hello, Larissa. Hi, John. It's great Larissa, to be- it's it's great to have you here. We need to get better at introductory small talk. Would you like to do some of that today? I, f- I feel like we just kind of say hi, and then I start asking questions. And yeah, I mean, tell me something yeah, good, Larissa. Known for small talk. You I don't like it. Conversations. No, got to get right to the heart of things. We just had a sixth baby. And okay. so that makes six, eight and under. And I don't know how my wife does it because I don't know how I do it. And I, I don't really do much except for wake up a lot lately. Our guest today, the great Jared Stout, currently director of content at Exodus 90. Hello, Jared. Good to see you again. Hey, John. Good to see you. Welcome back. We tried to tape you about a year ago, I think. And we had so many technical glitches on our end that it never it never made it live but that's okay. We're great to have you. Glad to have you back now. It was a great I, conversation. So it was intrinsically worthwhile. It really, yeah, it was a great conversation. Unfortunately, it's on the cutting room floor for now. Lost lost to the ash heap of history and not non-aired podcasts, but great to have you here, Dr. Jared Stout. You were in Denver doing great things in the diet in the Archdiocese for Education, actually responsible for our pilot program, AMI's pilot program in the archdiocese, which was just fantastic. And now you're at Exodus 90. So tell me how many cold showers a day should I take? Well, you know, you might need extra with falling asleep all the time with all those kids keeping you up at night, you know, so you just might need a cold shower to wake you up a few times a day. Yeah. You know, Exodus 90 was ahead of its time on the cold shower thing. Now it's all the craze. I I did Exodus 90 a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. And it's a really good thing. I'm glad Exodus 90 exists. So tell us what you're doing there as far as content goes beyond dictating the pace of cold showering. <laughs> well, you know, Exodus has been known for an, a 90-day spiritual exercise. And part of what really makes it work, it's it's not just doing a whole bunch of hard things like taking a shower and, and you know, giving up, you know, media and technology and these kinds of things. It's that you are doing a holy hour every day and you're in fraternity with other men. And I think that is really the secret sauce of what makes Exodus work. Uh, but, you know, so many men have asked us, okay, but what comes after the 90 days? And, and Exodus has tried some different things, but uh, my job is really to just provide additional content and formation so that men can continue to grow and thrive beyond those 90 days and, and to keep growing in the spiritual life. Um, and we really have some wonderful things uh, in the works. I mean, right now we're doing an Easter exercise 
which includes celebration and festivity, you know, after all of those sacrifices that we made during Lent. And so we're going to be following the liturgical year and just helping men to enter into the liturgical year to continue their fraternity uh, and continue to grow in prayer. That's fantastic news. And it is true that the I think the church teaches somewhere, I don't know where, but I like to quote this awesome or uh, or Gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't know where, but I like to quote this often, or at least paraphrase it, that uh, your duty to feast is greater than your duty to fast. Is that true, or is that just optimistic thinking on my part? I, I would say that the fasting is for the feasting, and therefore that's correct. However, you can't have one without the other, right? You have 40 days of Lent, but then you do have 50 days of Easter. So there does seem to be something about the feasting being more important, but every Friday is a mini Lent and every Sunday is a mini Easter. And so the the combination of the two is really the winning ticket. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And party and heart ain't easy. It's almost like you've, I mean, I guess it should be, but, but it can be difficult to find so many ways to feast. I mean, give us a little sneak peek. How do you feast well among the Exodus men? Well, you know, unfortunately with Easter, right? We just said it's 50 days, but it's like, you know, Easter day two, Easter Monday, everybody just goes back to normal. So we said, you know what, you you know, as a fraternity, you guys need to be getting together and we need to actually be celebrating Easter for 50 days. And so we encouraged guys, you know, with their family to, you know, go take a walk, um, try some Trappist beer. I don't know where I came up with that idea. Um, But, you know, actually get into the church's own traditions of this. Um, even just do things like having a game night on a Sunday. And But say it's for Easter. We're gathering people together. We're going to have like a dinner and then we're going to do something fun, whatever it is. But, you know, actually just making time to celebrate the holy days. Well said. Mm-hmm. Trappist beer. Larissa, we just sent our biggest AMI donors a nice little gift case of Trappist beer, our friends uh, from the monks of Norcia, uh, and they just released a new triple, which is delicious. Have you tried that one, Jared? I haven't. I've had their other two, but but not the new one. Now, of course, that's not Trappist yeah. beer, but it is Benedict. Oh, that's so, true. That's Belgium. Yeah. That's but it's as if you wrote the book on uh, a Catholic's uh, guide to beer, right? What is the book you wrote called? Uh, the, the beer, beer option, option, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, you have to be a Trappist to make Trappist beer. That's I mean, true. So I guess yeah. they're doing, they're Benedictines making beer in the Belgian style. Would that be? Yeah, yeah. So they're, I mean, they're generally in that monastic style of brewing. And actually on my blog, buildingcatholicculture.com, I have a list of all the different monastic beers of the entire world. Um, and there's, you know, a couple hundred. So yeah, you can check it out there for the definitive list. It's not all in Belgium. And I definitely love what the Norcher monks are doing over there. Wow. I got it. See, I had to get my beer facts straight talking to Jared. Stead. I forgot, <laughs> forgot you were the foremost expert, but the tripleism of all the uh, beer, beer inertia products. I think the triple is by far the best. So well, I'm going to have to try it. You can Google that. It's fantastic. Yeah. So, we need to start this episode as a three beers. Go ahead, Larissa. I was just going to say we should have three beers episode right now. What were we thinking? Why are we not drinking beer, John? I would be asleep if uh, I would be asleep one beer in. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, awesome. So the beer option is another great book by Dr. Jared Stout that everybody should read and, and, uh, drink, drink during. So let's talk about Newman because we're excited to have you teaching for the Albertus Magnus Institute. You are of course, a senior fellow done great work for us. And you're going to be teaching a course this summer on Newman's idea of the university, which I think is almost full. But if you're listening to this now and want to grab a seat, or apply just so you can be in that course, by all means do so at magnusinstitute.org. So Jared, let's just talk about that. Uh, what is Newman's idea of university for somebody who hasn't read the text? Well, what's interesting is he calls it the idea, uh, but for him, it was not hypothetical. So of course, after having his his wonderful experience at Oxford, of course, being a, a key figure of the Oxford movement within the Church of England, of course, he's led to his conversion to the Catholic faith um, in 1845, and that's really the, the culmination and fruit of his time at Oxford. And he's ordained uh, a priest, a Catholic priest, uh, in the years that follow, and he founds an oratory in Birmingham, England. And it's from there, not that long afterwards, he's like a new, newly ordained Catholic priest, and he's called by the bishops of Ireland to come to Dublin and to establish the first Catholic university in Ireland, period. Now, of course, Ireland has a very long history of studies, right? This is the land of saint, saints and scholars. And, and so a lot of even the foundations of the universities in the continent came from Ireland. But it's really a momentous moment to say, okay, this is going to be um, Ireland's first Catholic university because Trinity College in Dublin was founded by bloody Bess, Elizabeth I. Um, and so the Catholics actually actually didn't have their own place to study. So in the early 1850s, uh, Newman comes over. 1851, he begins coming over and having meetings and giving some talks about university education. And he comes over officially in 1852 to, to get things started. He's appointed rector of this newly founded Catholic University of Ireland. Um, and you can imagine that it's a it's a little bit tense because Ireland is not its own nation at that point. So, you know, Newman is just going to another part of the United Kingdom to get this university going. And so he's an Englishman trying to start an Irish Catholic university. So it was somewhat difficult for him from the beginning. And, and the, the university opened in 1854 uh, with only about 20 students in its first year. But Newman gave a number of lectures and discourses to the faculty and then also to the students. And this was really the foundation for the book, The Idea of a University. He's trying to explain to his faculty and to his students what a university is really about, why Ireland should have a university, why a university ideally should be a Catholic university in conjunction with the church herself. And so this is what we have, this book, The Idea of a University, that, that is the fruit of Newman's difficult venture. You know, he only lasts until, I mean, it's just seven years about total uh, in Ireland. So he wasn't there that long altogether, but the university still continues under a different name in Dublin. And so you can say, okay, yes, you know, the university kept going, but it, it never became what Newman really wanted it to be. But we have this book. And some people have said that it is the greatest book ever written uh, on universities, like what a university is. Wow. And if not fully actualized, 
in Dublin, where do you see the idea of a university most alive, if that's a fair question? It is a very difficult one uh, because, you know, Newman founded three faculties, letters, science, and medicine. And so what would the temptation be? It would say, well, of course, it would be like Thomas Aquinas College, you know, at, at, or, you know, Christendom. I think every PAC would say that, yes. Yeah, right. But but is it a university? Because one of the things that, that Newman says to define what a university is, is that it teaches the fullness of knowledge. And so, as I mentioned, you know, Newman established a whole faculty of sciences and a faculty of medicine. And of course, medicine and law were both faculties in the early medieval universities. And so Newman said to be a university to the fullest degree, there really has to be an attempt to teach the fullness of, of human knowledge. And that's mm-hmm. actually a, a key element of the book, because he's saying that modern universities are leaving out theology. And so therefore, they cannot be universities because they're not teaching theology. But could we say the same thing about some Catholic universities? And I'm not knocking them, right? But I'm just saying, according to Newman's vision, you you really would need a full and complete university to live up to to his ideal. So which not only was teaching theology, um, but was teaching the liberal arts and, and was teaching law and the sciences, medicine, and then also had robust formation within a college system, right? Newman was very big on the collegiate model um, that, you know, Oxford uses, where you have a lot of the formation and even the study happening, not in the classroom, right, but within the residential college. And it's the tutors who end up being very formative. And of course, Newman himself was a tutor at Oriel College in Oxford. And so there is a way in which he sees the the tutors within the college as having the most impact on the students as they are going to the university to receive their lectures um, in the different academic fields. So that's why it really is a difficult question to answer, because where do you see that happening? You know, I I, I hesitate, right? Because do we see that happening? Maybe that's a challenge. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, So for Newman, what would the length of study be just the years in which areas, you know, in university and leading up to university? And then to what extent would prior arts and sciences, arts and sciences be propedeutic to something like philosophy and theology? Uh, is somebody showing up at the university and just diving right into philosophy? Uh, tell us how that would work ideally. <laughs> Well, ideally, yes. Uh, You know, Newman went to one of the famous public schools in England, which, of course, are not public schools at all, right? They're private schools. Um, And, you know, he was not only reading, uh, you know, English, uh, you know, well, English, yes, of course. He was not only reading Latin and Greek poetry at a young age, he was writing Latin and Greek poetry at a pretty young age. So Newman had, you know, really a phenomenal education from a very young age that he was prepared to go to Oxford. And, you know, today we're, we're playing catch up, right? You know, we're actually yep. trying to teach our college students the basics, which, of course, Newman would have seen as, as presupposed for students coming to the university uh, itself. Um, so New- Newman says at the beginning of Idea of a University that he is talking about ages 17 to 22. Um, but students would have already had a foundation in the liberal arts. They, they would have already studied Latin and Greek. Um now, at a Catholic university, he knows the one that he's starting is not Oxford. 
and that not all of the students would have had the prestigious public school education that he had in England. And so I'm sure that you know the the standards that that he implemented there would not be the same as the average student coming to Oxford. But nonetheless, he could have presupposed a stronger foundation in liberal arts than we can today. And so therefore, right, the students can do more, right? And, and of course, they would be reading and when they're studying literature, they would be studying these texts in the original languages. And in Oxford today, I don't even think they have the original language requirements, at least that they did back then, right? It's and pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, but then, you know, over here stateside, we're also a little bit behind the eight ball to say the least, because most of our undergraduates can't parse a sentence. Right. Uh, and even so, my own kids, right? My kids have been yeah. in classical education like their whole lives. And they they couldn't parse a Latin sentence to save their lives. I think they could parse an English sentence fairly well. But I mean, I, I don't know what they do in Latin class. <laughs> you know, they study Latin yeah. every year and they don't know enough Latin, I mean, to save their lives, you know, just in a basic level. So wow. So what do we do? Uh I mean, it seems like, you know, to the extent that the idea of a university as Newman would have, it was, I guess, somewhat an ideal uh, insofar as it never and that was it was never actually realized and now we're so much farther behind is there hope i mean can we i mean we're trying right we're all trying we're all in the same line of work here trying to provide authentically liberal continuing education that mm. people have been deprived of and know it is that the best we can do i mean where do we have to start just give us a little tactical outline for what newman would have us do well, rather than saying what Newman would have us do, maybe we should talk about what we should do. Okay, <laughs> because, you yeah. know, I think Newman would have a difficult time conceiving of where we're actually at right He'd now. He'd be rolling over in his grave. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, if he hadn't put lime in his own grave and destroyed all of his own bones, then uh, he would be rolling over, but he didn't leave anything wow. to roll over. Uh, so there's not many relics of Newman, unfortunately. But, you know, um, I'm going to start I have a lot to say about that, actually, but I'm going to start just by even looking at the the edition that we're using for the AMI uh, class um, about the idea of a university. The introduction is by Don Briel, right? And this is from Clooney Media. Don Briel is my mentor, and I wrote my master's thesis on Newman under Don at the University of St. Thomas. He was the founder of the nation's first Catholic studies program. And he wrote his own doctorate on Newman um, at the University of Strasbourg. Now, the, why why did he found Catholic studies? Because Newman in the university talks about uh, the circle of knowledge, that all knowledge is one unified whole. And if you're only looking at one aspect of things, of reality, you really don't understand even that one aspect, right? You can't understand anything unless you really understand it in terms of the whole. And so what Don was trying to do uh, within the fragmentation of the modern university in which everybody is overly specialized, right? You're taking general requirements in different areas, but none of them are really, you know, connecting to each other. Yeah. And so you just get all these bits and pieces and fragments. So Don was, was trying to create an, a whole within the whole, right? So something that actually was integrated and coherent within the university. And so the Catholic studies program would enable the students to fulfill some of their core requirements, but it was an interdisciplinary program. So what Don did is he drew faculty from throughout the university, not just in the School of Arts and Sciences, but people from the School of Business, from engineering, 
Um, and so, yes, also the arts and sciences and got them all together. And they started having conversations on, you'll never guess what the university really is. <laughs> That's where they started. What are we really even trying to do here? What kind of formation are we trying to give the students? Um, and from that uh, was born this idea of the Catholic studies program of having a program where students could begin to explore the connections between things. And, you know, one of the things that Don did, and Newman was really open to this and found in the university, Catholic University of Dublin, of Ireland, that is, was um, to also make connections into the professions. And so um, not only were there interdisciplinary classes and theology, philosophy, art, literature, that's the low hanging fruit. And, you know, any Catholic university could do that. But he also had classes in Catholic studies and engineering, Catholic studies and psychology, Catholic studies and business, Catholic studies and law. And there's actually a whole Murphy Institute at the University of St. Thomas exploring the connections of the Catholic uh, faith and law. And, wow. and that's actually born a lot of fruit. Murphy's law, you might say. Now, there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I think that that is one important thing that we can do is actually begin to think about education as a whole and how we as Catholics can make connections between different areas. Now that's on the university level. And I would really recommend that approach, but, you know, as a father, as somebody who worked in Catholic school administration in Denver, you know, I think there's things that we can do on the lower level. Um, and actually it, it's impossible to conceive at this point of having our elementary school students compose Greek and Latin poetry at this point, what they actually need to do is just go outside and look at things and, and put their hands in the soil. Mm. Uh, we need to rehumanize. And I guess this is where maybe John senior, this influence would, would start coming out in me to say that, you know, we can't teach the humanities unless the students have been humanized because we live in an inhuman culture. And so I think that the best preparation for the liberal arts is actually to help our students to have a good human experience as children and to begin thinking, to begin talking, to be immersed in beauty. And then we'll do what we can on the high school and college level to give them the best experience in an integrated way of the liberal arts that we can to kind of build on that so that they can then be prepared to, to carry that into whatever profession that they enter. Wow. That's, and then they'll, they'll get the undergraduate experience that they deserve and are ready for at that point, but it does start earlier. So get down to brass tacks for us. Does that look like Montessori? Does that look like, I mean, what, I mean describe, you know, I, there's probably a few great options out there, but what do you recommend at a particular level or a program of study at that, at that age, age range? It's really a work in progress for me. I actually just finished a book called Words Made Flesh, um, the sacramental mission of Catholic education. I'm trying to think about this, uh, both in terms of you know nature um, and the humanities and the arts and how this all fits together. Um, and so, you know, part of the reason that I'm moving to the land, I just bought nine acres in North Carolina, is that I actually want to open up an educational program, whether it's a full-time school or not, that is beginning to explore some of these things more concretely. Um, now, it can be Montessori. I, I don't agree 100% with Maria Maria Montessori's method, but I agree with a lot of her principles. And actually, I engage that somewhat in the book, you know, where I think she's on the right track and where I think she's maybe going along with kind of the progressive school of education, maybe a little too much. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that, you know, a, a lot of Catholic schools who are starting Montessori programs in the lower grades are, are on the right, right track in doing that. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think we should definitely explore the monastery method, take from it what we can. I think that we need to think beyond the sort of the sitting at the desk textbook model. There are certain ways in which kids actually just do need to memorize good things, whether it's poetry, whether it's, you know, certain important information, whether they're memorizing the faith or they're learning the, the facts of history, that's an important store of knowledge. But there's certain things like science, you know, science is killed when you study it in a textbook. I mean, that's not what yep. science is. And I hate when everybody says today, well, the science says this and the science says that science doesn't say anything, you know, science isn't <laughs> a thing to speak, you know, yeah. science is our study of nature, right? And so scientists may say this, but when you say science, it's like, who are you even talking about? Who's saying that, right? And so what I, what I would love for kids to do is to become scientists, right? In the best sense, that kids need to do their own observation of nature. They need to think about that. They need to, to, to even then act upon what they're seeing. And that's where experimentation comes in. Who came up with scientific experimentation? Albertus Magnus, Robert Grosteste. Uh, uh, Roger Bacon. These are the guys at, at the University of Paris and the University of Oxford. Speaking of the nature of the university, they thought it was their duty to understand reality to the best of their ability. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is, I, it's not like I want to throw the classroom out the window, but I do somewhat, right? So, I mean, kids need to be the passive recipients of information. Otherwise, they're not being educated, but they do also need to be more active. And so progressive educators just said, they need to be active and that's it. They shouldn't be passively receiving information and that's a mistake. And that's where I look at this kind of sacramental approach where they need both, right? That yeah. they're, they are receiving a tradition. They are entering into a great conversation, but they need to continue that by having their own life experiences and thinking about reality themselves. And I think that's where a lot of schools are failing right now. So what's completely, if, if the moving target of what you should do, you know, it's a work in progress. And I think a lot of us in our generation with our young kids now, are, we're figuring out as we go, but what would you say you just should plain avoid? What, what should you not do? Move, run, run the opposite direction from finish the sentence. <laughs> oh, public schools yeah. uh, would be one. I think at this point, um, you know, I, I agree with, Mary Hassan's book, you know, get out now, just like that. That's the only thing to do. Um, I would not send my kids to just a normal run in the mill Catholic school, because I think that's basically a public school plus some additional elements of the Catholic faith. Um, I think that the, the classical model has promised, but I guess what I'm, I'm saying, even with my recent remarks is I'd like to push that a bit. Um, because, even that can get a little too complacent. Like we're going to just continue to do the Catholic school model thing, but we're, we're going to read better books, you know, and we're, and we're going to show the kids beautiful things and that's all great. But I, I guess I'm just, I would encourage, and I have encouraged educators to, to really be willing to explore whatever they're teaching with their kids that, that I want the class to be a way of exploring reality. Now, if that's theology, that means that you're receiving God's revelation and you're praying through it. And that's the active part, the active receptivity uh, of, re of receiving God's revelation. Um, but that if it's science, I've already kind of given that example of, of, of get, making the kids to be very active. Um, if it's even literature, 
well, where's the active response? Is is shapes their own writing, right? And so, um, and I think there there are schools that are that are are better at helping the kids to learn to write well. But I tell educators like, let's be bold, you know, like let's actually take the principles of Catholic education, let's think through them, because just doing what we've been doing isn't working, and so let's be willing to try things differently. And, you know, I, I'll go back to John Sr. I mentioned him, right? You know, when you look at what he did at the, the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas, so he said, I don't, I don't just want to teach the great books. I, I want the students to experience the culture of the great books, to live them. Um, and that's what I, I really would want to see for, for Catholic schools or for homeschooling, whatever it is, that it becomes a way of living the Catholic faith and, and really living in an active community that is seeking the truth together and seeking beauty together. Yeah. I actually want to ask you a question and get your opinion on something regarding this, because I think integrating the great books and, you know, you said teach them beautiful poems and let them memorize these things from a young age and take them away from too much desk time. I think classical schools and homeschool, the classical renewal in general seems to have a pretty good grasp on how to do that with poetry and Mm -hmm. maybe science. Um, how do we teach math classically? And I heard recently on a podcast that there was this man, I forgot his name, but he said, you don't actually need to start teaching them anything other than counting until middle school. And then it all, like if they're playing outside and counting and learning addition, subtraction, a little bit of multiplication, a little bit of division, once they get to middle school, they already have this wonderful foundation in counting that you can teach it to them what we is what schools want to teach over the course of what kindergarten to third 13 you can actually teach in like a year because they have this amazing foundation in counting but do you have a opinion on that yeah i think that mathematics is one of the ways that we do teach logical thinking and order within the curriculum and so it should push us a little bit. I, I don't think we have to drill and kill to the point that the kids hate mathematics. Um, I think there's truth to that. I, I think it might be a little bit of an exaggeration to say only teach counting until middle school, right? But I think the idea is, okay, just calm down a little bit, right? You know, they're, you're not trying to get them into Harvard by eighth grade here, you know? And so I, I think that what would be great, even along the lines of logic or things like math puzzles, to help them to begin to see the order and the logic of numbers and how numbers work together. Even some basic geometry, you know, it's like they're not going to be doing Euclid in third grade, but can they begin to see the way in which shapes interact and that there is a logic um, among shapes, that there is an order here? Um So, I mean, Maria Montessori has great things to say about how to teach math in a natural kind of way as well, that that the the kids start thinking about number and shape that I think is is really worth considering. So Mm -hmm. I I think here we can think, we can reflect on how do kids naturally learn? What is a more human way of teaching mathematics? What are ways in which they can engage the language of numbers and become literate, you know, numerically? at a younger age, not by getting into concepts that are maybe too difficult for them at a young age and saying, well, my kid's already in seventh grade math, even though they're in fourth grade. I mean, that's just a bit ridiculous, right? Because it burdens them and they resent it. But I think that 
if we take the pressure off and we allow them to do things with numbers that are more joyful, joyful like math games, they can they can begin to learn, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. That's not burdensome, but you know, just do it in a, in a way that is not. I think putting too much pressure on them. And then, yeah, I agree. Like, let's wait till they're, they're ready to, to, you know, jive into some of these higher levels and learn more quickly. So I agree with the but basic you, concept, but I think there's a lot that could be done to, to unpack that more. So that doesn't yeah. sound that simplistic. Okay. Larissa, what, if I could ask, what, what, what happened to you growing up? I mean, you're the daughter of Andrew Kern. What did you, what was your <laughs> grammar school education? Like, do tell. I went, I was homeschooled. Well, I went to a classical school that my dad started in kindergarten, first and second grade and learned some Latin, learned a lot of reading. Reading and writing was always my favorite. And then I was homeschooled for through third, fourth, fifth and sixth grade and had a very, I would say Charlotte Mason education, um, lots of poetic knowledge, poetic experience. How about you, Jared? Well, I I was kicked out of the public schools in seventh grade, so I, I had a public school education up to that point. Yeah, buddy, doing brought my right. knife to school, zero tolerance, you know. So anyway, they they were right they on. were done with me. Yeah, um, I went over to the Catholic schools and had a big conversion. And you know, I I would say that middle school in the Catholic schools wasn't very good, <laughs> and I actually took a step back from the public schools. But I, I my uh, freshman year at our local Catholic high school was excellent. I had all honors courses. It was one of the most difficult years of study in my life. But then I went to Poland as an exchange student my sophomore year, and they were way ahead of us in like everything. And so I had a hard time keeping up with that all, especially in Polish. I mean, give me a break, right? So, uh, and then I went to seminary um, in Wisconsin my last two years of high school. And I started taking some college level classes. And so anyway, my education was all over the place. And then I went to the Catholic studies program up at St. Thomas. So I was very blessed with a lot of great experiences, but it wasn't very consistent. Mm. And you, you kind of came up in that John senior, more poetic pipeline, as opposed to the rigorous Euclid and like of say Thomas Aquinas college. Would you say that that's a, that's a gap for you? I mean, I know it is for me, um, or not. Yes. A, rig- a rigorous study of math and science, especially from a classical approach would be a gap for me. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. When do you introduce a kid to Euclid? Uh, I, I think high school is appropriate for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and how you know, about, I how- founded a Chesterton Academy in Denver for my kids. And so my three oldest kids did study Euclid at that Chesterton Academy and I think they they had a good experience of that. I, I mean, they weren't raving, but it didn't torture them too much or anything either. So, yeah. And and last question, just about practical matters for for young people. When when do you start them, and how do you start them on languages? That's something I just mm-hmm. it's a, it was a major gap for me. If I could get in my DeLorean and redo it all, I would I would get languages down better rather than trying to get proficient in college. Mm-hmm. And you know, no, no second language growing up, and I, and I just wish I had I had one, and then more exposure to Latin and Greek earlier. What's your take on that? You know, I I, I would suggest a more poetic approach to teaching Latin, in the sense that I would use the missile to teach the kids Latin. Yeah, 
Um, and then I probably would couple that with more like conversational Spanish. I know some people are like, let's teach the kids conversational Latin. I'm like, well, you know, Latin is a sacred language. So let's teach it to them as a sacred language that they actually use for prayer. It's not a dead language. That's a pet peeve of mine when I hear that. Latin no. obviously is not a dead language because we pray in it. And so it's more alive than most other languages. Um, and by the way, it's not even dead in a technical sense because the church continues to develop it um, because it's the official language that we use for all Vatican documents. So people will say, well, it's dead because there aren't words like computer and airplane in Latin, but that's false, right? Because oh, there are those words. Thanks to Father Reggie Foster. Who exactly. Also, he also know. put Latin on the ATMs settings in the Vatican. So you can, <laughs> you can withdraw your your oh. euros in Latin there. Yeah. Also, our whole uh, judicial system is in Latin, pretty much. So, true. You know. Yeah. Laura Mipsum. Am I right? Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, excellent. So that's really helpful. What, what resources do you recommend to a parent trying to educate their kids the right way? And then second question, what do you expect somebody who's about to take your AMI course on Newman's idea of a university to walk away with? Okay. So on the first question of, of what I recommend, I mean, I edited a book with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education called Renewing Catholic Schools. And so I, you know, I I think that just try to get a good overview of what Catholic education is really about. And whether your kids go to a Catholic school or whether they're homeschooled, I would say that you should just pick good books to read and discuss with your kids. Listen to classical music with them. Pray in Latin with them and, and learn Latin with them just in a very basic way, like the Latin prayers, Latin chants. And, and so I would just enrich your family life. Like I said, no matter what you're doing with your kids' education in those ways. And I'm not big on a curriculum. Everyone asks me that, what curriculum do you recommend? My answer is, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> like whatever the thing is that you want to study, just study that. Like find the best way to study it. And if you're relying on a textbook to do it, you're basically cheating. You know, and they say, well, hey, but you're a professional educator. So that's easy for you to say. And I'm like, well, what I mean by that is let's say you want to study, you know, biology in third grade. And so we'll just get some good books on whatever it is that you want to study and read them together and talk about them and have your kids write about them and draw pictures about it. Just that's real. That's alive. And once you sign up for a textbook program, it's like you are now part of, you know, somebody else's system that's artificial. And you're, you know, you, you say, well, what, what about testing them? I, I need the tests in the back of the book. It's like, <laughs> well, just ask them if they know it. And if they know it, then give them a good grade. And if they don't, then give them a bad grade. You know, <laughs> that's how, that's what testing is. I mean, yeah, even it, traditionally in the middle ages, right? That's how you tested somebody. You asked them questions and they either gave you compelling answers or they didn't. That's a test. You know? yep. um, so anyway, okay. So th that's my, you might say that's de-schooling, but it isn't really. It's just like, let's get back to what schooling is really about, right? Studying reality and just you you have things that organically help you to do what you want to do, whatever it is that you want to study. Just find the best things out there to make it real. Yeah. Okay. And if you're a teacher in a classroom, I, I think that's what you should do too. I don't care what the requirements right. are by the diocese or the state or whatever, but you know, just say, what's the reality we're studying and then get beautiful and good things to give to your students so that they learn about the realities and then they'll do better on whatever testing is required as part of the curriculum, et cetera. So, 
Um, but in terms of the, the AMI class, um, you know, Newman is just such a wonderful theologian um, to read. You know, the, the reason why I think Newman became an, an oratorian, you know, it's, here he is, a brand new Catholic. He said he didn't even know Catholics when he became Catholics because he was like in this bubble at Oxford. And so he goes to Rome as a new Catholic and he's meeting Jesuits, he's meeting Dominicans. He became an oratorian because he was so focused on place. He loved Oxford and, and he was very big on friendship, having a, a close connection with friends. And I think that's why he's a wonderful writer is because he writes in such a personal way. And even this book is written to people. That is, you'll see, you, you open up the book, it says, gentlemen, we're here today to talk about this topic. Right. And so it's very relational. He, he was talking to a real audience who was there to learn about what a university really was with him so that they could do it. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be a group of uh, friends. Well, I mean, if we're not friends already, I hope we will be, become friends uh, through this class. We're going to talk about great things, and Newman's going to be our guide. We're going to think about what education is with Newman. We're going to talk about it, and then we're going to do it in whatever way is appropriate to us in our lives. I might have to eavesdrop on that course. That sounds just fantastic. On the idea of friendship, this might be a dumb question, but did Newman have any influence on Tolkien or the Inklings, uh, these guys explicitly? I mean, tell tell us about the relationship there. Obviously, he Newman would yeah. predate them. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jared Manley Hopkins, of course, is not one of them, but you know, he actually was a teacher. Uh, under Newman. So we, of course, we see uh, Newman's influence very directly there. Um, with the Inklings, you know, I, Newman ends up casting a shadow over Oxford. So, I mean, the short answer is yes, of course, you know, and I think that Tolkien even more so than some of the others, but um, Newman himself, you know, was a novelist uh, and a poet. And I, I would say that he was the the kind of godfather of the Catholic literary revival. That happened in England. And, and like I gave the example of Hopkins as one of the first fruits of that, you know, and Newman's own kind of protege. Um, so yes, in a, in a broad sense, I think he he shaped a whole renewal of Catholic life and thinking and letters um, within England, including at Oxford directly. Oh, that's a really beautiful answer. I think an entire theory of education could be reduced from Hopkins' poem, Kingfisher's. Have you, have you read this one as Kingfisher's? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just so magnificent and never ending the layers of that onion. Uh, it sounds like another podcast episode. It might have to be. Would you like to be the featured guest on this podcast? <laughs> well, no, because I think what we should do is just read the poem together and talk about it. And so I don't need to be a featured oh, guest. Good. I'll just, that's good. I'll be your, you know, your dialogue partner as we, unpack yeah, let's, let's get a dialogue partner going. Uh, Larissa, let's book that. Maybe Stout and Courtright. Yeah, we, let's we, make it a know, webinar here. That would be an awesome webinar, the Kingfishers and Education. Uh, excellent. Dr. Jared Stout, this has been fantastic. We know you're a busy man. We'll let you go here. Uh, so Exodus 90, everybody should know about this if you're if you're into a, uh, ascetic things, as everybody should be. And what else do you want to plug? You on Twitter or anything? I'm, I'm not on Twitter. Good for you. <laughs> Don't have any blue check marks. Uh, but I have a new book, uh, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, came out with Tan uh, fairly recently. And then you can also follow me at buildingcatholicculture.com. 
Awesome. And if you want to join Dr. Stout's AMI course on Newman's idea of the university, magnusinstitute.org, there might still be a few spots left. We do cap courses at 25 in attendance to preserve this level of intimate conversation and access to your senior fellow who's at your service. Do us a favor, give us a five-star review on this podcast wherever you're listening to it. It goes a long way for us, helps get the word out. And thank you, Larissa. We had, what, at 60,000 plus downloads now. And so somehow everybody's, at least more people than are producing this podcast are listening to it, which can't be said of all podcasts. So great work. <laughs> and so uh, for Larissa, Bianco, I'm John Johnson. Jared Stout, thank you so much. We'll see you in class on the fellowship. Take care. Can't wait. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.